And Cole's going to be preaching to us from Genesis, and it's uh, chapter 28, and we're going to be reading from verses 1 to 22, I think. Genesis chapter 28. So Isaac called for Jacob and blessed him. Then he commanded him, do not marry a Canaanite woman. Go at once to Padan Aram, to the house of your mother's father Bethuel. Take a wife for yourself there from among the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful, increase your numbers until you become a community of peoples. May he give you and your descendants the blessing given to Abraham, so that you may take possession of the land where you now reside as a foreigner, the land God gave to Abraham. Then Isaac sent Jacob on his way, and he went to Badan Aram, to Laban son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, who was the mother of Jacob and Esau. Now Esau learned that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him to Padam Aram to take a wife from there, and that when he had blessed him, he commanded him, do not marry a Canaanite woman, and that Jacob had obeyed his father and mother and had gone to Padam Aram. Esau then realized how displeasing the Canaanite women were to his father Isaac. So he went to Ishmael and married Mahalath, the sister of Neboth, daughter of Ishmael, son of Abraham, in addition to the wives he already had. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth and its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending onto it. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord your God, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you, will watch over you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, this is the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me 
and will watch over me on this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's household. Then the Lord will be my God and this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house and all that you give me I will give you a tenth. We thank God for his word to us this evening. Thank you, Terry. Every year the, at the Edinburgh Fringe, there's a competition that's actually um, paid for by the television channel Dave. And that competition is for the 10 best jokes of the Edinburgh Fringe. And this annual joke competition is so popular that it's even reported um, by the Times and the Telegraph newspapers. And when the winning entries for the past five years are as follows. 2015, Darren Walsh won with the joke. I just deleted all the German names off my phone. Now it's hands-free. 2016, Masai Graham said this. My dad has suggested I register for a donor card. He's a man after my own heart. 2017, sorry, Ten Chen, he said this, I'm not a fan of the new pound coin, but then again, I hate all change. 2018, Adam Rose, his joke was, working at the job centre has to be a tense job, knowing that if you get fired, you still have to come in the next day. And last year, oh sorry, last year, this year, um, Olaf Falafel, believe it or not, that's a genuine name, that's not the joke. He's actually a Swedish comedian. Olaf Falafel, he said this, I keep randomly shouting out broccoli and cauliflower. I think it may have florets. That to me is the, the worst one. My favourite one actually was by a Christian comedian back in 2011, Tim Vine. Don't even know Tim Vine's a, a, a very, very strong Christian. His, um, his uh, one-liner was this, or two-liner, crime in multi-storey car parks, that's wrong on so many levels. <laughs> now some of you may or may not find those jokes funny, and perhaps some of you are still trying to work them out. For you, the penny has yet to drop. And that's exactly what's happening to Isaac in chapter 28 of Genesis. Remember, whenever we read these passages, you've got to put it in the context of a chapter before and what's been going on. And, and the last time we came to, um, to Isaac, we heard about the fact he'd been resisting God's will. God had told him that, um, that Jacob should inherit the blessing, but he resisted and tried to give the blessing to Esau, but that was fraughted by a plan by Rebecca, and we had the last, last sermon all about the kind of deceit that was going on in that household. It was typically a dysfunctional household, very dysfunctional. But suddenly, the penny has dropped. Finally, Isaac is getting on board with God's will. And we find, first of all, in this passage, Isaac commanded. He commands um, Jacob. So we read in verse 1 this, we said, So Isaac called for Jacob and blessed him. Then he commanded him, Do not marry a Canaanite woman. Go at once to Padam Aram, to the house of your mother's father, Bethel. Take a wife for yourself there from among the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. Suddenly, 
Isaac is taking command of a situation. He gets off his couch, finally. And remember, when you read, the, read this passage, you've got to remember that he was seeing himself as an old man, but he lived for another 40 years. He had prematurely got onto his couch. He prematurely had began to go into decline. Because why? Because he wasn't listening to God. He was working against the purposes of God in his family and in his life. And Rebecca, who seems to be the wise one in this partnership, Rebecca has gone to him and made it quite clear that he needs to, uh, Jacob needs to leave, um, obviously because um, now Esau's plotting his death, but also because he needs to get a wife. And he's not going to find a wife in, the, uh, in his current geography. 20, chapter 27 ends with this verse in verse 46. Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I'm disgusted with living because of these Hittite women. If Jacob takes a wife from among the women of this land, from the Hittite women like these, my life will not be worth living. You see, Isaac had failed to do for his sons what Abraham had done for him. Remember that wonderful passage we read um, some weeks ago where Abraham sits down with his servant and he says to his servant this, he says, I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I am living. And he swore, he got his servant to swear and to go 400 miles away to his, to his relatives to find a wife from within his own tribes, within his own religion. But we find in this passage that he hasn't been like that. He hasn't been so productive and proactive for his children as Abraham was for him. And so we're told in the previous chapter, 2026, 20, when Esau was 40 years old, he married Judith, daughter of Beri, the Hittite, and also Basmath, daughter of Elon, the Hittite. They were a source of grief to Isaac and Rebecca. Why were they a source of grief? Because their customs, because their behavior, their ethics, but especially their faith was not the same as, as Abraham's faith. It was not the same as Isaac's faith. It was not the same as Rebecca's faith. And as a consequence, there was strife within that family. We don't, we're not told exactly the nature of the strife, but it was so great that, that Rebecca then complains to Isaac and says, we must send Jacob away so Jacob could get a wife from among our people. So finally, the penny drops and Jacob is sent away, but not sent away by himself. He is sent away with the blessing. We're told in verse 1, so Isaac called for Jacob and blessed him. And he willingly blesses him because finally the penny has dropped and Isaac begins to get on board the will of God and passes the paternal blessing upon the one that God has said it should pass to. He gets off his bed and he acts. But what suffering has been caused because he delayed and lingered and refused to act earlier? He refused to take command of the situation. He allowed it to slide. To such a degree now that his son Esau has two wives from the Hittites. There's strife in his tent. There's strife in his family. And Jacob's having to leave because Esau is planning to murder him. 
And how often we can cause strife in our lives by not immediately acting on the will of God. We can know what's right, and yet we resist, and we debate within ourselves, we delay, we procrastinate, and things slowly spiral out of control. But Isaac gets on board with God's will, and he blesses Jacob. And he blesses Jacob according, in fact, a better blessing than in chapter 27. He blesses him very similar, in very similar terms to the blessing that Abraham himself had given Isaac in Genesis chapter 26. We find it's a prayer of blessing, a prayer for blessing. May God Almighty bless you. I love that, God Almighty, the source of all blessings. Who is God Almighty? El Shaddai, the mighty one, the one that can bless. All our prayers are prayed to God Almighty, El Shaddai. Our God's not a weak, impotent God. He is a mighty God. He says, may God Almighty, the all-powerful God, bless you. It was a prayer for fruitfulness and make you fruitful and increase your numbers until you become a community of peoples. Not just a community, but a community of communities. It's a prayer for protection and presence. May he give you and your descendants the blessing given to Abraham. In other words, may you continue that presence of God upon our family. And a prayer for a future homeland, so that you may take possession of the land where you now reside as a foreigner, the land God gave to Abraham. It's a lovely blessing. Finally, for Isaac, the penny has dropped. Finally, he gets on board with God's will and prays this beautiful prayer for his son Jacob so he can now leave his father properly with his father's blessing for the journey ahead. And even with Esau, the penny is moving. It hasn't quite dropped. I don't think it probably ever drops with Esau because Esau is too full of his own pride, his own will and his own stubbornness. But it's began to move in a gradual descent towards the earth. And we find in this passage Esau confused. Esau confused. He stopped his crying. He stopped his outrage, his anger that we find in the previous um, passage on, on losing his birthright and finally seems to accept some responsibility. So we're told this in verses 6 to 9. Now Esau learned that Isaac had blessed Jacob and had sent him to Padamaram to take a wife from him there. And that when he blessed him, he commanded him, do not marry a Canaanite woman, and that Jacob had obeyed his father and mother and had gone to Padamaram. Esau then realized how displeasing the Canaanite women were to his father Isaac. It hadn't occurred to him before for all the strife in his household and the strife in his tent and the disagreement between Isaac and Rebekah and his two wives wasn't a problem. It was only when that problem threatened his relationship with his father finally that the penny starts to drop with Esau. In the past, he relied upon the fact that he was the favorite. He was the hunter. He was the one that provided his father the venison. He was the one who was always the apple of his father's eye. He always relied upon that and treated his father and his mother with a degree of contempt. When finally he sees that Isaac actually really blesses Jacob and sends him off, the penny starts to drop. He realizes he's on very thin ice as a son. 
and finally he decides to do something about it. We mustn't miss out on what's happening with Esau because Esau is here in the, in the, in the in Scripture for a very real reason. And his, the lesson he teaches us is not the lesson some people we get very confused about and, and begin to think, wonder how he lost his birthright. Because Esau never deserved that birthright. He was never in the plan of God because God knew the heart of Esau before Esau was even born. Esau was a self-made man. He was a self-made mess. He lived a feckless life of self-pleasure, ignoring both responsibility and the feeling of others. He knew about the story of how his um, grandfather got a wife for his father, um, Isaac. It was a story of legends. These kind of things were spoken about. In those days, when there was no TV or radio, people would recount the histories of their families. It was a conversation. You would learn about your heritage and about your grandparents and your great-parents and where you came from and the journey from Haran. He knew the story. And yet, Esau was a man who always sought the easy way. We're told in, in Genesis 25, verse 34, that he despised his birthright. He despised his birthright. To him, it didn't matter. His heritage didn't matter. So much so, he was willing to give it up for a bowl of soup. And that word despise should be noted because it's a very strong word. This is how it's defined. To detest, hate, loathe, regard with contempt, deplore, dislike, scorn, look down on, pour heap, scorn on, deride, scoff, or jeer at, sneer at, mock, revile, spurn shun and this despising was not limited to his birthright he'd shown a despising towards his parents to his mother and to his father to their ethics to their god their faith and in fact he despised anything that got in his way which is why he's so heavenly censored in the new testament paul writes in romans 9 verse 13 God said, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. God doesn't hate Esau himself. He hates the behavior, the character, the nature of this man. How he had allowed himself to become someone who was literally despicable. Who despised anything. Who was a narcissist. Someone who was so centered on his own, own enjoyment and pleasure that no one else counted. So Hebrews, in Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, we're told this, even no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, or for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as, as the oldest son. To him, to Esau, nothing was sacred. Nothing was important. Life was one big jolly game. And life isn't one big jolly game. We are responsible for our actions for how we treat others. And we're responsible to our God who made us because we're not here by chance. We have a responsibility to live according to the designs of the maker, the one who designed us. We have a purpose. But Esau wasn't bothered. He despised anything but wasn't involved in his own pleasure and his own will. But the penny starts to drop 
And so we're told that when he began to realize how serious his family took the idea of not marrying a local woman, we said, he says here, so he went to Ishmael and married Mahalath, the sister of Nebeth, the daughter of Ishmael, the son of Abraham, in addition to the wives he already had. And that last bit is the clue here. But he didn't make things better. He just added to the problems because even she wasn't of the line of Sarah and Abraham. She was only of the line of Abraham through the pragmatic action and the encouragement of Sarah to try and get an heir. She wasn't following God's will at that point. He hasn't made things better. It was a half-hearted response. And God hates half-hearted responses. He doesn't like us when we're just lukewarm as Christians. We need to be on fire for God, full of God, asking God to use us because we are his hands in this world. We can be like Isaac too often and retire to our bed and to stay on our bed and not go about the Lord's business and procrastinate and put things off. And God doesn't want a half-hearted response. Remember the seven churches of Asia in Revelation and the famous one, the Laodicea, where the Spirit says to the church of Laodicea, I know your deeds, but you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. One of you ever got dinner and you've got it out of the microwave and you sit down at the table with your book or your magazine or even in front of the TV, and you take a first bite and suddenly realize it's not quite hot enough. And you think, oh, can I be bothered? Can I be bothered to get up and heat it up? If I don't heat it up, it's never going to be quite right, especially if it was something that was frozen. You can taste the coldness there, can't you? And the taste and the flavors aren't there because it's lukewarm. It's not right. And God wants us to be on fire for him. He hated the half-heartedness of Esau. And he hates the half-heartedness of us. We need to follow Jesus wholeheartedly to walk and to follow him. So we find Esau in this passage confused. But Jacob finally is making a move. He's on his way somewhere. And God is leading him guiding him, even though he doesn't even realize it. And I love this part of this story, because it's quite wonderful. And you can, you can imagine Jacob where he is, because we're told earlier on that Jacob loved being among the tents. And we find that Esau is 40 years old when he takes his two wives. So, Esau, so Jacob's in his 40s, because obviously he's a twin. So he's in his 40s, and he hasn't left home before. He's a homeboy. He's lived in the tents. And suddenly he's forced out and his father commands him to make this massive journey to Padamaram, 400 miles, 400 miles by himself in the wilderness. That's a scary journey to make. No torch, no lights, no car. He's by himself and he's never left the tents before. He's not like Esau, he's not a hunter, not a man of the field. He's a man who prefers to be within the tents. And so this is a scary journey. But in this passage we see that God is there leading him. He's not walking alone. God is guiding him. But he doesn't even realize it. 
And so in his journey, he stumbles upon a holy place where his ancestor Abraham had worshipped the Lord, a place called Bethel. We're told in verse 11, when he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He doesn't realize this place is where Abraham, his great-grandfather, built an altar to the Lord. He doesn't realize it. He's randomly walking through the wilderness, but God is leading him to this place. And he reaches the place exactly at the time when the sun goes down, he can't do any further walking, he's tired, and he reaches for these stones, perhaps even the stones that were used by Abraham to build the altar. Why? Because God is in control. Jeremiah the prophet said this, Lord, I know that people's lives are not their own. It's not for them to direct their steps. Abraham is walking out in faith, but God is walking with him. Jacob is following, unbeknown to him, the leading of his father God. And so finally we find that Jacob is confounded. Jacob is confounded. Under the direction of God, he stumbles upon a sacred place, a place that had been used for prayer and worship. And in such places, the distance between heaven and earth is reduced. I don't know about you, but um, I've had lots of people who have come to me who aren't Christians but love going into churches and holy places. When you inquire why, they tell you it's because they sense there a quietness, a peacefulness, a tranquility. In Celtic spirituality, this kind of place is called a thin place. A thin place. And the Celts call it a thin place because they say the, the gap between man and God is thin. It's a bit like a pair of trousers that you, you use for prayer. And you're needing those trousers on a regular basis for prayer. And over the course of months and perhaps even years, the knees get thin. And they begin to wear and places where there's been prayer, there's a thinness between heaven and earth. And this was a place where Abraham had built an altar to the Lord, not once, we're told, but twice. And Jacob had been led there by the Spirit of God. And he lays down to pray there. We're told about this in Genesis 12, verse 8. Abraham went on towards the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent. With Bethel on the west and Ao on the east, there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. And then later on in chapter 13, verse 3 to 4, from the Negev he went to, a place, from, went to place to place until he came to Bethel. So the place between Bethel and Ar, where his tent had been earlier, where he had first built an altar, there Abraham called on the name of the Lord. God was leading Jacob to a place where God had spoken to his grandfather Abraham a thin place, a sacred place. Coincidence? No. Our God's not a God of coincidences. Our God's a God of purpose. And he makes patterns where we don't even see them and brings people together who he intends to bring together. God was leading Jacob. And while he was there and he put his head upon that stone, we're told that he has a dream. He has a dream, we're told. 
in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it and there above it stood the Lord. I find this incredible. Here is Jacob, the one who's just left his home, who's actually anxious and worried and he comes on the very first night on his 400 mile journey, he, he finds by accident the place where Abraham had built an offer and prayed to the Lord, a holy place, and that's the place he takes to sleep. And that's the place where he has an encounter with Almighty God. It was a stairway between heaven and earth. We're told he had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with his top reaching to heaven and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. It's interesting, this whole passage has been the subject of actual pop songs. Those of you who like your rock will know in 1971, the very famous rock band Led Zeppelin had a hit with the famous song Stairway to Heaven. I'll actually play you a bit of it tonight, but it's eight minutes long, so I think it's eight minutes too long. It's a great song, you can find it on YouTube. But Stairway to Heaven is about someone, a woman who's trying to buy a stairway to heaven. And for many people, when they think of this kind of idea of Jacob's ladder, they think of a way in which they can find their way onto the first and second and third rung by doing good works, some way they can travel between heaven and earth. But this ladder, this stairway, is not for humans. In fact, when Jacob sees it, he sees God at the top and going up and down. It aren't human beings, they're angels, God's messengers, God's servants. This stairway was not for human beings. I've actually been on, a, on Jacob's ladder with Terry. Don't know if you remember, yes. When Terry first came to see me in, in, in Edinburgh, we had a coffee, a fantastic coffee, in a Turkish coffee shop on the Royal Mile in Edinburgh. And afterwards, we had to get Terry up to the old Parliament building. And so we went along Jacob's ladder. Jacob's ladder goes up to Colton Hill, Oh, sorry, that's not the one. Okay, I'll go there. I'll come back to that one. Jacob's Ladder in, Scotland, in Edinburgh goes up um, the side of Colton Hill and it's carved into the volcanic rock and it's 140 steps. And not only steps, it's also a, a passageway like that. You end up getting to the top quite puffed um, before you make your way um, to the Scottish Parliament. But we'd eaten some baklava, so um, I managed to wear, wear off the calories. But that's not the most famous Jacob's Ladder in this country. Any of you hill walkers will know there's another Jacob's Ladder. Anyone know where it is? Any hill walkers here? Sorry? Not Cheddar. No, it's a good answer. It's not Cheddar. It's in the Peak District. Mind anyone? Anyone know where it is? John, John's thinking of it. It's in the Peak District. The highest peak of the Peak District. Anyone remember? Yeah, here it is. Jacob's Ladder... Yeah, that's right. Well done, John. It's a Kinder Scout on the way to Kinder Scout. Been up there as well. It's a lovely, lovely climb. Um, some parts of it aren't quite as good as that, um, but it's a wonderful climb up to the top of Kinder, Sky, Kinder Scout. And Kinder Scout's the highest peak in the Peak District. And these kind of ladders, you know, we think about them as a way of getting to heaven, but in fact, it's not. That's not what's been showed here. Jacob's been given this invitation to this relationship with God and shown that God is involved 
On this ladder are God's servants, his angels, going up and down, working up the business of God. The Hebrew word here for, for the ladder itself, um, or stairway, literally means a piling up. And it, mean, it refers to a pile of earth, and it suggests like a ramp going up to heaven. It's not a ladder, because you wouldn't get angels up and down the ladder very easily. It's a ramp, it's like a passageway between earth and heaven. But it's not a passageway in which we make our way to heaven. It's a passageway in which God brings his blessing down to earth. And that's exactly what happens in this passage. Because God blesses Jacob. He offers him land. He says, I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. He promises him fruitfulness. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples of earth will be blessed through you and your, blessing, uh, and your offspring. So it's a blessing also for others. And finally, it's a promise of presence. God says, I am with you and will watch over wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And so Jacob, this man who's living in this home back, back in, um, in Bathsheba with Rebekah and Isaac, he suddenly promises God that he would honour him and offers him loyalty. The Lord will be my God, verse 21. He worships him. This stone that I've set up as a pillar will be God's house. And finally, he promises him to give to him. All that you will give me, I will give you a tenth. Faith is growing and being increased in the life of Jacob. He already recognizes that all that he has is a gift from God. And he offers to give him a tenth, a tithe, of all that God gives to him. Jacob is confounded. He is confounded. He has stumbled into a thin place. I mean, this wonderful verse, it says there, when Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place, which is none other than the house of God, the gate of heaven. He is confounded. He is amazed. He sees the awesomeness of this place and the awesomeness of this God. And in a way, he has an encounter with Christ because Jesus is the gate of heaven. Later on, Andrew will bring to, bring to Jesus in John chapter 1 a man called Nathanael, a Nazarene. And we believe that Nathanael was reading this very passage when Jesus saw him beforehand. And, he, and Jesus says to him this. He says, very truly, Verse, uh, chapter uh, one, John 1, verse 51. He's talking to, 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 um, to this man, Nathaniel. He says, Very true, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. He's referring to himself. And he's telling Nathaniel that if he follows him, he will see that he is the gate of God. And later on, Jesus teaches the crowd, Make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. He is the gate. And so he says later on, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. 
John 10, verse 9. Jacob had discovered, seemingly by accident, but led by the Spirit of God, he discovered a special place. His grandfather Abraham had discovered. He discovered that his God, his grandfather's God, now his God, is a God that wants to be involved. A God who loved him. A God who offered to protect him and to be with him. Not only in this 400-mile journey to Haran. Sorry, not to Haran, to Padam, uh, Aran. Not only in this 400-mile journey, but for the rest of his life. Promising him fertility. Promising him land and a purpose. Jesus is the gate. And he began to see that very gate itself. I think it's a wonderful story. I think it's a lovely story when you see suddenly you know, the truth dawning upon Isaac, the father. You even begin to see Esau beginning to realize that things aren't the way he thought they were. But especially you see Jacob exposed in the wilderness, wandering in the dark. And God breaks into that darkness and reveals himself as a God who says, Jacob, don't worry about this journey. Don't worry about being in the wilderness because I am with you and I will be your God. And that's God's message to us. But he is with us. No matter how dark and long that wilderness, no matter how difficult and treacherous that land, he is with us because we have a way to God through the gate, through Jesus Christ. And we have that relationship that Jacob experienced once in this place called Bethel, but we can experience every day we kneel to pray. Every day we come into the Lord's presence. Jesus is the way to God. His truth, and he brings us his life. Jacob discovered that in Bethel. We know that through Calvary. Let's make sure that we're not half-hearted in our response to his grace and his goodness, his love and his promises. Amen. Let's stand.